Good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name's Ricardo, one of the pastors here if you're visiting. Just it's all good to be back this morning with you all worshiping this morning. And I just want to say a thank you to all of you for prayer prayers last week as I was away at Snow Glow with the youth and we had a time of we had a great time of fellowship. We had a good time in the word and worshiping and just want to say thank you all for everyone who helped make that possible, who donated, who were praying for us. Thank you for, for all of that. We had great travels and just a great weekend overall. We are going to be continuing today in the Gospel of Mark, looking specifically at Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And what we'll see in today's passage is really Jesus just lays this foundation for a question that has plagued us as believers for Christians for quite some time, time and time again, for, for centuries, we've, we've had to deal with this question of how do we as believers, as Christians, how do we relate to the government? How does my faith in Christ, my faith in Lord, how does that impact my obedience to the government? And of course, this question is at certain times in our lives, it's easier to answer yes to than at other times, especially when we perceive that the government is doing our will, doing good. We agree with everything. We might be more inclined to agree with that question, with the answer of yes. But that's not always the case. And what we'll see in today's passage is really Jesus lays the foundation for us, if you will, on, on how we are to interact with our governing agencies, with those who are set to rule over us, those ruling authorities, how we are to interact with them. In today's passage, we see that, that Jesus really does lay the foundation for this, that, that Paul, when he writes about this subject, and, and Paul in chapter 13 of Romans, and when Peter writes about it again in 1 Peter 2, they really, they're using this as the base of their foundation to share their teaching, to go about what they believe is our relationship to our governing agencies. And so even though in your Bibles the text may simply say paying taxes to Caesar, there's more here than just simply what we are to do with our money. There's more here on how we are to live our lives in this world today. And so as leading me to my main idea and don't have really any points for us today, it's just this is the main idea. This is the overarching theme throughout today's message and is that as image bearers of God, we are to give our lives completely to God and worship him above everything else. As image bearers of God, we are to give our lives completely to God and worship him above everything else. We are in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. In our Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there is one in the pews in front of you. You are more than welcome to use that. If you need one to take home, that is our gift to you. We are in page 848 in our pew Bibles. The word of God reads, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me the nares and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. 
Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne this morning, Lord, and we acknowledge you as the most holy God there is, Father. We acknowledge you for being perfect in love and mercy and grace, Father. And it's because of that that we're able to be here this morning, sit in these seats, that we're able to proclaim the truths of your scripture. We're able to marvel at all creation because of the grace that you've given us, Father. Lord, as we spend the next several moments diving into your word, looking at the things of the scripture, Lord, we ask that you may impact us, Lord. May we learn, may we grow in our love for you. May we grow in our understanding of the word. May we grow in our understanding of the calling that you've given us as believers, Father. Lord, we pray over the, the students and the, and the kids and children's church right now, Father, as they are in their lessons, Lord, we pray that they're able to focus in, Father, and, and glass and glean from that lesson what you are, Father, the truths of your scripture, Father. We pray for their souls. We pray for their salvation, Lord. Lord, we ask that you eliminate any distractions here today, Lord. Help us to grow in our understanding of who you are, Father. We pray all this in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. And as people said, amen. amen. This passage today takes place really during the final week of Jesus' life as we saw in chapter 11 as Jesus is making the triumphal entry into Israel. We see that this is taking place what some would call Holy Week or, or Passion Week. And some would argue this is either a Tuesday or Wednesday. But what we have here is really the first of three attempts that we see of people of the Sanhedrin trying to trap Jesus, trying to ask him a question, to trick him up, to turn people against him, to turn rule against him. And this is their first of three attempts, and we'll see them going forward the next two. And it starts with verse 13 where it says, And they sent to him, they here being the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of the time. They are the ruling council of the Jewish people. And the Sanhedrin was mainly composed of three different groups. You have the Pharisees who we have in today's passage. We have the Sadducees who consisted mostly, the Sanhedrin consisted mostly of them. And then you also have the scribes. And we'll see over the next several weeks, each of them play a role in these asking these questions and trying to trap Jesus. But today we have the Pharisees who, along with the Herodians, they've come. They were sent to trap him. And the interesting thing about these two groups, about the Pharisees and the Herodians, is that they really couldn't be any more different from one another. They really were on opposite ends. And and at the end of the day, they really did despise one another. They did not like one another. You had the Pharisees who, for all intents and purposes, they were more religious than the Herodians. The, The Pharisees considered were more worried about the laws of God, while the Herodians were more worried about the law of the Roman law. The Pharisees pushed back against Roman occupation while the Herodians were, were welcoming it. They were accommodating to the Roman people. They, they were more than willing to bow down to Rome. And so you have the Pharisees, the conservatives, if you will. You have the Herodians who were more liberal. They were on opposite ends of the spectrum. But yet, as we see, they come together today to try and trap Jesus. Two groups who really despised one another, did not like one another, they found a common interest in their hatred 
of Jesus. They're willing to put their differences aside, willing to look by the facts that they don't agree on anything really other than this man, Jesus, must be stopped. And so they come together, putting aside their hatred for one another, because their hatred for Jesus supersedes their hatred for one another. And really, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised when the world, in turn, hates us as believers as well as we see here. They hated Jesus. These two different groups were willing to just put everything aside to destroy him. This is why Jesus says that the world, that we will be hated at all. That as believers, as Christians, he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, we will be hated by all. The world hated Jesus. Don't expect any different for yourselves. Don't be surprised, as it says in 1 John 3, 13, when the world will hate you. They don't have the same values as us. They don't agree with us. They hate Jesus, and they will, in terms, hate and, and try to destroy us as well. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when the world comes trying to take us and destroy us, because that's they first did it to our Lord and Savior. They were willing to team up. We don't really have allies in this world. We may think we do. We have people who maybe we align politically with, maybe we align religiously with people that we think a little bit the same, but really they are not our allies. The first moment that they can, they will turn on us the way they are turning on Jesus here in this passage. Remember, the world hated Jesus first, and they will hate us as well. It says that they were trying to trap him. Literally, to go hunting is the word here in the Greek. They are coming to capture him like they would an animal or a fish going hunting or fishing. They are out to take down this man, Jesus, because they cannot stand him and what he stands for and that he is pushing the status quo, if you will. And they go about it in a very tricky, crafty way. The world is crafty, and they will try any means to trick us. They tried any means to trick Jesus, and they will try to do whatever they can to do the same to us. We see this in verse 14. And they came to him and said, teacher. Now, we know that this teacher here is a title of respect. They're calling him rabbi. This was reserved for the rabbis, and they're like, teacher, we have a question for you. Even though they did not respect Jesus, they didn't acknowledge him as a teacher, they're willing to come to his face and essentially lie and say, teacher. They're trying to destroy him, yet they're coming to his face and saying, teacher. They have been seeking to destroy Jesus for a while now. We see this all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where Mark writes, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. They've been plotting this what it seems like for years, to come to Jesus and find ways to bring him down, to destroy him. And they finally have had enough, and now they're going to use flattering words. They're going to lie to him as much as they can to his face to try to catch him off guard, if you will. Teacher, we come, we respect you. And they continue, we know that you are true. We, we know that you are a man of integrity, depending on your translation there, that you are truthful. They're trying to catch him off guard. They're trying to, in essence, butter him up. Right? We know that you are a very honest and noble man. And that you don't care about anyone's opinions. In other words, Jesus does not change what he believes according to what people are telling him. He's not changing his beliefs according to what someone is saying about him or saying to him. Jesus holds to the same beliefs no matter what. We know this about you, teacher. We know that you are a man of integrity. 
They claim, they continue going on, claim that, that he doesn't acknowledge anyone for their looks, that he is, has no favorites. He's not swayed by appearance. He's impartial. You don't have any favorites. You don't look at man's on the outside appearance and, and according to what you see, decide what you're going to tell him. You hold to your truth no matter what. We know this of you, teacher, because you are a, a man of integrity. They go on. Lastly, they claim to know that Jesus truly teaches the way of God. For you are not swayed by appearance, but truly teach the way of God. We know, teacher, that you're honest. We know that you're true. We know that, that you're, you don't care about man's opinion. You don't care about how we look. We know that your ways are the ways of God. We know that, that everything that you say is true and that everything you teach aligns truly with the word of God. We know that your ways are the ways of God. They flat out to his face are trying to just flatter him with the most insincere words they can. They don't believe any of this, but they think that if we tell Jesus this, we can trick him. We can bring his guard down and we can finally become, start his destruction. See, the world will do whatever it can to trick us. They're doing whatever they can to trap our Lord and Savior here, and they will do the same for us. This is why we shouldn't pay attention. We shouldn't listen. This is why in Psalm 5, 9, it says, for there is no truth in their mouth, speaking of the wicked, speaking of the word, right? You cannot trust what they say, for their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. The world will do what it can to convince us that, that they believe the things that we believe, that they are on our side, that, that they have the same morals as us, that they are fighting the same battles as us. And the moment they can, they will turn their back, just like they're doing here to our Lord and Savior. We have to, as believers, be discerning. We have to look out into this world and we have to remain in God's word. We have to remain in prayer and ask God and seek God because the world is out to trick us. They want to think that they are on our side. And we have to, in order to be on the lookout, we have to be discerning. We have to be willing to remain in prayer and seek the things of God over the things of this world. Or else we will fall privy to any tricks of this world. And it's easier said to done at times. We can look at someone and based off what they say, based off how they act, we can look and say, they're not of God. We need to be cautious of them. But there are times where people will look, they will say the right things, they will act the right way, they will agree with us. And those are the times that we have to be most discerning. We have to be more concerned with the things of God than the things of this world. We have to be discerning. We can't be discerning if we're not remaining in prayer, if we're not remaining in Christian fellowship, if we're not remaining in God's word. If we don't have our noses in our Bibles, it's going to be more and more difficult to discern what is true and what is not. But the world is out, was out to get him. And if we think we're any different, we're telling ourselves a lie. The world first hated Jesus and they will hate us as well. Moving on, after they, after they felt like they've gotten him where they, they want him, after they felt like they've buttered him up, they've gotten his, to drop his guard, they finally asked their question. And it says, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They're simply looking here for a yes or no answer. 
They don't want Jesus to expound on this. They just want to say yes or no. Do we pay our taxes to Caesar or do we not? And as much as we may like yes or no questions, as much as they are easy, we have to be careful. Oftentimes, majority of the time, yes or no questions can in turn be trick questions. As one commentator says, this is very similar to someone asking a man, do you still beat your wife? There's no right way of answering that question. And really, there's no right way of Jesus answering this question. If he says yes, then what he's doing is he's aligning. If he's saying yes, that we have to pay our taxes, then he's going to be labeled a traitor. We have to pay Rome what they've given us. So if he says yes, that means that he agrees with the Roman rule of Israel. He agrees with the imperial Roman tax that was imposed on them all the way back in 6 AD when Judea came under Roman rule. And so he would be labeled a traitor by those who were following him. None of the Jewish people wanted to pay this tax. They felt disrespected and they were looking to find any reason to not pay it. And so if Jesus in round says, yes, we are to pay this tax, he'll be labeled a traitor, and he would probably lose a lot of his followers, which the Pharisees wouldn't mind. But if, even if he answered no, on the other hand, the Herodians would go back to the Roman government, and he'll be labeled an insurrectionist. This man, Jesus, is trying to raise up the Jewish people against you. He's telling them to not pay their tax. He's trying to lead a revolt. He must be taken down. There was a, this was a lose-lose situation in their eyes. No matter his answer, yes or no, it's not going to end well for him. But Jesus, being sovereign and knowing all things, he knew these men's intentions. Right? He answers them first. But he goes, but knowing their hypocrisy, verse 15, Jesus understanding them, knowing their hearts, knowing their intentions, he knows what they're trying to do. And this is something we often overlook as believers. Where the Bible says in Psalm 44, 21, that God knows the hearts of man. That we think at times we can hide certain things from God. That we can think certain thoughts and God doesn't know those thoughts. But all throughout the scriptures we see that God knows our intentions. John 2.25 says that God did not need anyone to bear witness to man because he knew himself what was in man. There is time and time again example in the gospels, all throughout the gospel of Jesus knowing the intentions of man. Yet we think that we can hide things from God. But we can't. And him, it says, knowing their hypocrisy, he asked them a question. Why do you test me? This word test there is the same word that Mark uses all the way at the beginning when explaining that Jesus was being tempted by the devil all in, in the desert. In other words, he understands there is some demonic nature to this line of question. He understands what they're trying to do here. He asked them, show me. A denarius. Let me look at it. Bring it to me. And they bring him this denarius. This was a small silver coin. It was worth about a day's worth of work at the time. And this is what you would use to pay the tax. If you were paying this Roman tax, you could only use this denarius, this Roman coin. And on the Roman coin, on one side, it was a head picture. It was a bust of Tiberius Caesar. And it was inscribed with Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, it was simply inscribed with the chief priest, the high priest. This was a very blasphemous coin. 
claiming someone to be divine that wasn't. And he asked, let me see this coin. Bring it to me. We're not told who brings it to Jesus. Someone does. Whether it was one of the Pharisees, the Herodians, or someone who was with them. Someone had the coin. Someone was already paying the Roman tax. Even though they're here trying to trick Jesus with this question. And he asked them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they respond, Caesar. In verse 17, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And what we see here is a couple of things. In Jesus' response, we see several things. The first being that in his response, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. He is, in one sense, legitimizing human government. What do I mean by this? That, that he, instead of taking this opportunity to speak out against Rome and their oppression and their evil government, which it was evil, he instead says, give to Caesars what is Caesars. He legitimizes human government. We know this to be true because we understand that the, even the governments in place today, they all have been ordained and instituted by God himself. We see this in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, where Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. As I said earlier, Paul is using this here really to lay the foundation for this, that every governing authority, whether we like it or not, has been instituted by God. That it's ruling because God is allowing them to rule. And so he legitimizes human government. And he says it's each institution plays their role. He, we know that God has ordained and instituted the church. And that our role as a church is to proclaim the word of God and to administer the ordinances. And the government, they are charged, they are instituted to protect the people and keep peace. They can do that by any means that they seem. Whether it's levy taxes on people, then we are to pay them as we see in Romans thirteen seven: Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. What we see here is there's no room for how we may feel. There's no room for whether we agree with it or not, whether we like it or not. We are to subject ourselves to the governing authorities because they are in place by God. He has ordained them. He has instituted them. And we are to subject ourselves to them. Now, this doesn't mean that we do everything and anything that they tell us to do. There is limits to this. We should at times resist the governing authorities, especially if the government is asking you to sin. We must say no. The government is asking you to do something that God, not to do something that God has asked you to do. Then we obey God over man, as Peter says in Acts 5.29. If the government is asking you to do anything immoral, if anything in, in, in authority over you is asking you to do anything unethical, at those moments we say no, we obey God rather than man. At times it's easier to know the immoral acts. Sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to 
feel like whether this is ethical or not. Maybe your boss is asking you to turn a blind eye as they're cheating someone out of money, as they're doing wrong. And we have to ask ourselves at that time, what do I need to do? Should I report this or not? As believers, we should never go against our conscience. These are things that we have to battle with, with our, this idea of, yes, we are to subject ourselves to the government, but we're also to worship God above everything else. And it's a battle. It's something that we don't take lightly. It's something that we do prayerfully. There are times where we feel like we have to practice a little civil disobedience. It's not something that we decide to do just on a whim. We have to be praying about that. We have to seek counsel. We have to seek God and, and, and ask the leaders that we have over us if, if this is something worthy or not, this is good. And then we have to act according to our conscience. We don't just wake up one day and decide, I'm not going to pay taxes. We just don't wake up one day and decide, I'm not going to listen to our government anymore. There are times when that is necessary. But to get there, we must be doing that prayerfully. We must consider the things of God. We must obey and honor God over man. And that's a lot harder than, than we think it is. It's a lot more things we have to consider than, than we would like. But there is a time when we need to stand for what is right and true in God. Another thing that Jesus acknowledges through his response is that our allegiance is to God and God alone. He says at the end of verse 17, and to God the things that are God, that we are to render to God the things that are God's. So the question is, what, what things belong to God? The foundation for that answer, for this truth, goes all the way back to the question that Jesus asked in verse 16, where he asked them, whose likeness an inscription is this, or depending on your translation, whose image is this? And when we hear that, when Jesus asked that question, whose image is this? Our minds should take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It's the same type of idea, the same word, where it tells us that let us, Jesus God, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. This lays the foundation for what are the things that belongs to God. If the coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image, then we as believers, as people, as mankind, we belong to God because we bear his image. We bear his likeness, and so we belong to God. And because of that, we are to give God everything. We are to give our lives to God. We are to surrender all that we have back to God because we bear his image and his likeness. If the coin is Caesar's, then our lives belong to God. In other words, God takes precedence over everything else. Yes, we obey the government, but first and foremost, we worship God. We belong to God, and we worship him by loving him with our minds, with our heart, and our soul, and our mind, with everything that we have in us. We are to worship God and love them. And as I mentioned earlier, our worship of God, 
The fact that we belong to God, that everything about us belongs back to God, that supersedes our obedience to any earthly authority over us. Our boss, our parents, don't get too excited, their children. But, we, but our worship of God supersedes everything else here in this world. So we give God everything. We give God our lives, give God our finances, we give him everything because we bear his image. Above all things else, we worship God. We belong to him. That's everything. The way that we view this world has to be viewed through this lens that first and foremost, we are God's children above everything else. And then that affects Everything that we do here, that affects how we do our jobs, that affects how we love one another, how we treat one another. It's because we belong to God. Because we are made in his image. We are stamped, if you will. Just like the coin was stamped with Caesar's image, we are stamped with God's image. And therefore, we belong to God and only God. He's given us everything. He's given us his own image. He's given us the faith that we've had. He's given us everything that we have on our shoulders, the homes that we have, the shoes that we wear. It's all been given to us by God. And in return, we are to give him everything. We are to give our lives to God because we bear his image. We belong to God and God alone. And as I close today, to those here who may not know God, who don't have faith in God, who are, don't consider yourself a Christian or a believer, my question to you is, what is your hope in? Is your hope in the ruling authorities? Is your hope in, in the government that they will do everything according to what you deem is right? Is your hope in the things that you've built? Is your hope in this world? If that's the case, then understand this. You will be let down. Everything in this world at some point will come crumbling down. The Pharisees and Herodians, their their hope was in this world. They were more concerned with the things of this world than anything else. The fact that Jesus was threatening their influence, the fact that Jesus was threatening their livelihood... Their power, everything that they've built, they decided that we need to destroy these men. Everything that we've accumulated on this earth, he is threatening and he must go down. They had no help in anything else but in the things of this world. So is your hope in the things that you've built? And what happens when all of that comes crumbling down? Because it will. There's been millions and millions of people who've lived this earth, who've accumulated wealth, and the day that they've dead, they've lost everything. We have digs, archaeological dig sites of of people's homes that they've lived at and that they've built and they probably were very proud of that, now just in the dirt, just being studied. Everything that we have in this world will come crumbling down. But for believers, those who put their hope in Jesus Christ, they can still praise God when that happens. We can still stand, and no matter what is going on in our lives, whether we lose our jobs, whether we lose our homes, or whatever maybe, we can still stand there and praise God because our hope isn't in what we've built here, 
but what's to come. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and him bringing the new heavens and earth. And so no matter what happens as believers, we can put our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that one day we will see him face to face and worship God fully. Not afraid of anything, not worried about anything else. But if your hope isn't in that, then you have nothing to hope for beyond this earth. Beyond your time here. So maybe, maybe you want to put your hope in that. Maybe you're tired of putting your trust in the things of this world and always being disappointed. Maybe you're tired of worrying about accumulating influence or wealth or whatever it may be, and you just want to put your hope and trust in God. You can do that today. You can put your hope fully in the things of God. First, you have to acknowledge first who God truly is, the creator of everything. The chairs that we sit in, the breakfast that we ate this morning, the lunch we're going to have, the clothes we have, it would not exist without God first existing. He created everything out of nothing. And everything that we see, the air that we breathe, it's all created because of who God is. And this God who created everything, the Bible says he is holy. He is a perfect and holy God. And because of that, we're not We're told all the way back in Genesis that sin has entered this world. And because of that, now we are all sinners in the eyes of God. Each and every one of us, myself included, anyone who was up here today, we understand this truth to be that we are sinners. So we have to acknowledge God for who who he is. And then you have to understand that there is nothing that you as a person can bring to God that can make him give you favor. There's nothing that you can do. Nothing that you can say that will bring you hope unless you put your hope in Jesus Christ. Understanding that he has given us a way out. That God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And this God, he taken on our human nature and was truly God and truly man. Experiencing the things that we experience. Going through life the way we go through life. Being tempted but never sinning. The only person to have ever walked this earth and never lied, never steal a stick of gum out of his mom's purse, never did anything wrong was Jesus Christ. And he came into this world, lived the life that we can't, that we're unable to, and then willingly goes to the cross and takes on our punishment, the things that we deserve, the whipping, the hanging, the shedding of our blood. He takes that on himself. And then he dies on the cross. And through his death on the cross now, mankind is able to have the forgiveness of sins. And then he rose again three days later. And because of that, we're able to now spend the rest of eternity with our Lord and Savior, with the creator of this world. We are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So if you put your hope, if you put your faith, if you put your trust in the works of Jesus, then you can leave today having peace with a holy and perfect God. You can stand before him, not as righteous because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. Our sins are laid upon him, and then his righteousness is laid upon you. If you haven't talked about that, if you haven't considered those things, if you're not sure what it means to put your hope and trust in God, then we are willing and more, and we would love to talk to you. Pull us aside, 
You can have our emails, our numbers. It's all in the programs. It's all online. You can find all that. We would love to go out over lunch and talk to you about what it means to put your faith and trust in the works of Jesus Christ. For the believers, your allegiance isn't to this world. Your allegiance isn't to the things that you've built. Your allegiance isn't to your family isn't to your job. Your allegiance is to God and nothing else. God takes precedent over everything. God over politics. God over work. God over your desires. God over your friends. God over your comfort. God over your family. God over sports. God over the Republican Party. God over the Democratic Party. God over the Libertarian. Whatever party you want to Claim God over that. It's God above everything else. Our allegiance as believers is to God and God alone. We cannot, you cannot, it is is not possible for you to serve two masters. You're either with God or against God. And understand this, this, this allegiance to God the fact that we are to give our lives to him, that affects everything, every area of our lives. The way we interact with people, we have to realize we are God's people here, that people are looking at us different because we are claiming to be Christians. And so that changes the way we interact. It changes how we are to love people. It changes the way how we are to speak to people. Our allegiance to God is to God and and nothing else. God affects everything about our lives. We can't hold on to a little bit of the old selves while still trying to serve God. We can't claim to know God but not want to let go of our sins, not want to let go of the things that are against, contrary to the things of God. Your commitment Your allegiance is to the one whose image you bear. That is the God of the universe, not to anything else. And you are called to devote yourself. You are called to devote your life to God above everything else. It doesn't matter how that makes you feel. It doesn't matter if you still don't like that. We as believers are made in the image of God. And we are to devote ourselves to him and him alone, not this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, coming to this world and dying for our sins, Father. We understand that without that, we couldn't sit here today and claim allegiance to you, Father. We know that without that, Lord, we couldn't sit here and sing songs of praise to you, Father, that without your Son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, we couldn't just submit ourselves to you, Father. So we thank you for that, Lord. We ask that you give us the strength that we need, the wisdom that we need, the discernment that we need to say Christ above everything else. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen.